Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. And this week, I'm really excited. We have Aaron Levant. He's the CEO of Network, which is a live stream commerce platform. They do some pretty cool collaborations with creators. And I want to just go into what's going on with the live stream space in the US. Everyone has said for years that it's about to take off. We're always about to take off. And now it seems things are taking off. And you guys have been sort of at the head of this for the last couple of years, or more than a couple of years, I guess we could say. But I want to dive into it, hear about the background of Network, who you are, Aaron, and then just go into what you're seeing industry-wide. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, why don't you tell us, me, the pod, uh, about yourself? How did you get into the the live stream space? It's a great question. Um, I kind of landed here a little bit randomly. Um, I spent the last 20 years working in the fashion, streetwear, and events industry here in LA and have been kind of a serial entrepreneur. I started off my career as a graphic designer. I was working at LA-based streetwear brands. I had my own brands. And through that process, um, I ended up actually going to a lot of trade shows uh, for the fashion industry in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. And that's when I had the idea when I was like 19 years old in 2002 to start my own streetwear fashion trade show called Agenda. Um, And I launched that in January 2003. Over the next 10 years, I developed that into one of the largest uh, streetwear, sneaker, and action sports trade shows in the world. And I had over 2,000 brand clients and 10,000 retail clients and built relationships with every media company, athlete, musician, agency in the world and took that into a global event. And I ended up selling that in 2013 to a company called Read Exhibitions, which was the largest trade show company in the world at that time. And they had a pop culture division called Read Pop, where they owned a lot of really interesting events like New York Comic Con and every major fan convention in the world. So uh, after selling the company, I ended up staying and working at Read Pop and becoming a senior executive there um, and worked with some amazing people and uh, expanded the agenda brand, ended up launching a event called Complex Con in partnership with um, Complex Media, which is a really fun project, which is kind of like Comic-Con for all things sneaker culture and pop culture. Um, and through that experience, I ended up meeting um, a few years after that got off the ground, I ended up meeting a group of investors and some of my co-founders in LA who were circling around the idea of creating the QVC of Gen Z. And, you know, I'm sure that's been an overused term and you've heard that a lot, but, um, you know, the, the equation was what's Comic-Con plus QVC put in a blender, you know, for the mobile first pop culture generation. And, you know, I thought that was a really interesting idea. I had read a lot about Taobao and what was happening in China and, you know, I hadn't seen something like that in the U S and when this was happening, this was 2018. So pretty early for the live stream space. There's a lot of talk about it and a lot of investment in the space over the last two years, but in 2018, it was kind of a nascent idea. And I decided to, uh, leave a 15 year career in the event industry to come tackle something new and chase this new, exciting digital platform to, to, to learn some new tricks. And, uh, the rest is history. I quit my job in February, 2018 raised some money in May of 2018. And then uh, we've been off to the races ever since. Wow, the the rest is history. Um, So what did you believe Network was going to be when you were first launching it? And is it what it is now, what you thought back in 2018? Like we had a lot of really big ideas going back. Um, So I always like to think big. So it is what I thought it was going to be, but it it looks different and the business model is different. When we started, um, we were really building something that was more like 
QVC from a business model standpoint, where we actually controlled the end-to-end consumer experience. We got goods on consignment from hundreds of different brands and celebrities. We brought them into a centralized warehouse. We shipped the goods to the consumer. So you got one branded network package that could have products from three or four different brands in it, right? So it was it was really you know more reminiscent. We created all the content in our studio, much like QVC, and we invited people to come to our studio in Hollywood. And we did that for the first two years. And you know, after that, after we, we got some decent scale and had some success and did some major launches with major brands and celebrities, you know, we wanted to figure out how to scale the business even faster. So probably about two years in, we shifted the business model to become a marketplace, which it wasn't in the very beginning, which is really our primary business model now. And, um, you know, I think that was a, a very big change for the business model and, and, and really, you know, the quest of us becoming a technology company and a marketplace versus a media company and a retail company. So that was a big positive pivot for us, but that we've been going through now for the last two years. Um, so that's the biggest way that it differed. But I think the idea of creating this, you know, live, engaging, entertaining platform where some of the biggest brands and celebrities in the world are dropping exclusive products and, you know, creating that kind of FOMO and tune in moments that you feel like you can't miss and things sell out fast. That was, you know, the initial inception of what we were trying to do. And now it's gone. We've done that at scale. And now we've gone much beyond that. We've moved into new categories, new verticals, new supply side of the product, meaning in the beginning, we only sold exclusive products from brands. Then we started moving into resale and getting smaller creators and retailers on the platform, not just, you know, huge brands and celebrities. So it's, it's just diversified and continue to grow and evolve over time. And I think it's just become more interesting. I imagine that the shift to going from sort of the whole shebang where you keep inventory and, and, and do all that to being a marketplace is cheaper and less of a headache, at least from a fulfillment standpoint, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's more asset light in the sense that we have less logistical involvement in the end end, but it's much heavier on the technology side. So you trade one investment for another. Um, and, you know, I think one is more infinitely scalable A marketplace can become essentially as large as your marketplace liquidity and demand is. And the retail side of the business, um, you know, had some 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 caps on it unless you wanted to get into taking more risk and having more operations, et cetera. You know, and I think at the end of the day, like do you want to have a do you want to have the the investment community think of you as let's say Nordstrom's or Macy's, or do you want to have them think of you as, you know, StockX and GOAT, right? It's two different asset classes, right? And the valuations on retail companies are far less interesting than on marketplaces, right? So I think we're we're choosing a much more interesting business at scale of uh, as one we're building now than the one we built in the beginning. I want to talk about the scale thing and I want to talk about sort of, you know, what the niche you've carved out for yourself, because you definitely, you're definitely a cult, a company that is steeped in culture. And I think that network is known as at least, you know, in stories that I read and the people that I talk to, you know, you do very well known drops, you ally with celebrities more often than not. And it seems like was that always the idea from the beginning that that is how you were going to reach customers was, was with these sort of big name and culturally cached that's not really a word but those tie-ins yeah i mean look you know because i just spent a little time telling you kind of about my background you know i spent 20 years of my career building relationships with talent and brands and very early on at network even before we had scale or you know a huge audience or a huge brand recognition we were able to get some really big brands like nike onto the platform our first week in business people like gary vanderchuk were coming on our platform selling sneakers our first week in big business odell beckham jr etc so a lot of really big brands and celebrities came early and that allowed us to build 
a pretty big audience base very quickly for very cheap because of these relationships we had. And we always wanted to continue that. Um, and we've still done that to this day, working on exclusive products with some of the biggest names in popular culture broadly across gaming, art, music, fashion. But, you know, even that has a, a cap to it. Only, you know, even we have so many relationships, there's only so many really illustrious people out there who put out products that have that kind of high urgency. So we've really continued to expand and, you know, the supply side of our marketplace. So people like sneaker resellers today represent a much larger portion of the revenue than, let's say, exclusive celebrity drops, right? And exclusive celebrity drops are the shiny object that sit at the top of that funnel that draw people mm-hmm. in, but they really stay for, you know, the thousands of other live streams that we have on a monthly basis. So you, you say that you've reached scale or, you know, scale compared to beginning. What does that mean? So talk, talk about the growth over the last, you know, four years. Yeah. So, you know, it's really funny. When I when I very, very first started this, I was obsessed with this game show app, which you may remember called HQ Trivia. Which is oh, not I a re- remember that very well. Not a retail thing, <laughs> but I think HQ Trivia was my biggest product inspiration from a tech side and what this could feel like, which is like, hey, once or twice a day, you get a push notification and people would tune in at mass and be highly engaged. And I wanted to take that same ideology, but apply it for a product drop. So in the beginning, we were only doing one to three live streams a week, right? Where now we're doing, you know, could be a hundred a day, right? And, you know, so the amount of streams and what's happening in those streams has, has changed dramatically. Now we still have a few really big moments per week um, that are as big as the ones we had in the beginning. We're only doing three, but it's just, there's only so many urgent moments. So just like the type of content that we have now, the amount of content we have, the categories, it's just all completely evolved over time. And the types of people selling products, so you have everything from, card breaks to sneaker resale to new product releases to an artist as big as Takashi Murakami releasing an exclusive product, you know, that costs hundreds or thousands of dollars per unit, right? So there's a there's a pretty wide range of things happening. And I think as we grow, we'll continue to, we call it here, expand the aperture on the types of things you can find because as consumers join the platform, they want more variety. They want to find new and differentiated things all the time. And we have different, call it fan communities within inside of Network's audience who have an affinity or appreciation for different things. And we need to satiate all those kind of sub-communities. So it needs to continue to evolve and expand. Does curation fit into this current model now, or do you let anyone sell anything? And, and how do you know what is going to be that one of the three big moments of the week so that you promote it or give someone a push notification or whatever? Yeah, so curation very much has something to do with it. Um, I think a key point of understanding how network varies from other, let's call it social commerce or live video platforms that are in the market is we're not a peer-to-peer platform. Not just anyone can sign up and start using our tools to sell like anyone could sign up for an Instagram or YouTube account or an eBay account, et cetera, right? Like I think almost anyone who has a pair of shoes can go sell on StockX as an example. So, you know, we are a B2C platform. We primarily work with businesses. We call them creators, but that's any, you know, large person, entity, or brand who has something to sell that we believe is additive or cool is the easiest way to look at it. And you know, even that definition has expanded over the years, where first it was just big celebrities and brands, now working with retailers and professional resellers. But even in the resale world, we primarily work with people who have like a storefront or a warehouse with millions of dollars of inventory in it. We're not necessarily working with that prosumer, as I would call it, like the kid who has a couple Pokemon cards in his bedroom or a couple sneakers he's looking to sell. We work mostly with professionals and businesses. And that's like our big point of differentiation being a B2C marketplace versus a peer-to-peer marketplace. 
And I wanted to get into this because this is a question that I imagine other people who are trying to get into this space, especially one that's so steeped in culture, is how do you, like, you know, given that you're working with, you're, you're in a, it's a B2C marketplace and, and you're expanding your aperture, how do you make sure that the brands and, you know, the creators that you work with are are legit enough or like we'll 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 create enough we'll we'll stay within whatever the vibe is that network has. Do you know do you understand what I'm saying? Like yeah. do you do you think do, are you scared that you're going to reach mass at some at some level? I'm never scared of anything and and even going back to my trade show days where I was building marketplaces similar to what we're building here at Network um you know while they be in the physical sense every time you change something there's always a purist that's going to be upset with you right yeah <laughs> and, and as long as i'm focused on a larger vision of creating this like ultimate shopping mall that has something for everyone you know that's the north star versus you know worrying about keeping one or two individual sellers that are like oh i, I only like network when you were doing sneakers or i only like network when you're doing art now you're in cards I don't like cards. Therefore, I don't want to work with you anymore, right? Like we're constantly evolving and growing and expanding our vision of the world. And, you know, we're ultimately in a pop culture business, which means we're in a trend business. And what's cool and what's not cool is constantly changing and evolving. It doesn't mean we need to chase bad trends, but we do need to be conscious that like a youth consumer, you know, has a diverse set of interests that's changing on an annual basis and we need to be able to cater to them. So we're okay to, to, to like alienate a very small portion of the community. If it means kind of um, continuing to what I believe offer a better product. And that's always happened with us as we've expanded, there's always a couple squeaky wheels and luckily we keep, you know, 80, 90% of the people happy and we continue to make something more dynamic and more engaging by offering more, even if we lost, you know, a couple of naysayers along the way, if you will. You mentioned, you know, youth is a big part of it. Is 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 the target demographic just all of Gen Z? Who you know, who is using the platform predominantly now, or is it constantly expanding now that you're adding these new items? Millennial and Gen Z are for sure the two cohorts who we have the most of. It doesn't mean there's not older people using the platform for certain categories like art and things of that nature. We have people, you know, in their fifties who are buying stuff from us, right? Cause we do sell some very expensive things. Our, our AOV is probably much higher than most other platforms out there. Cause we sell things, you know, we've sold something as expensive as $60,000 per single unit on the platform before. Right. So, you know, I don't imagine there's a ton of kids with $60,000 laying around unless their parents are paying for it. But, um, you know, millennial Gen Z, but our average age of our customer is a 30 to 31 year old male um, is, is actually who buys the most, but we have a wide range of customers and users. Got it. And, um, and just one other thing, network is about a 78% male driven platform at this point. So that's the most of our audience. So it's also, you know, a, a clear differentiator for us and how we separate ourselves from some of the other platforms who are focused on say, just beauty or female audiences. A lot of platforms focus on those audiences. Um, you know, women's fashion, et cetera, we're, we're very differentiated with our demographic. Was that intentional or is that, have you figured that out and now you're going further into that, finding that that's the white space you fill? Yeah, I think it was partly due to who I had relationships with based on my last career where we started working prominently in the men's streetwear and sneaker and action sports space. So it was pretty male dominated industry. So that was where we started, but also, you know, from an insight perspective, women's online fashion retail is extremely competitive. We're competing against some of the best companies in the world, whether it be as big as Amazon or Nordstrom's or whoever, right? People are really good at what they're doing. And the selection and the pace that that industry moves at, it's hard to be a new entrant in not just live stream shopping, but any 
female-driven fashion e-commerce platform is just a, is a very competitive space. So we saw there's just less competition for the male audience and it was an easier place to enter the market. I believe over time, our platform will evolve and become more female or unisex focused, but it's just not where we started. I want to zoom out soon, but I have one more question just about uh, as you're expanding and just in terms of talent and who you bring in. Do you specifically look for people in terms of scouting new brands or new you know categories to expand into who are experts of that domain? How, how do you figure out what it is that should be the next thing that should have a live stream program to it? Yeah, I think it's a complicated... Um let's call it recipe to figure out who and what is going to work. But I think we focus first on what are verticals or categories that have a certain level of fandom, right? That have, you know, those people that would go to a convention if that industry was having an event, right? You know, and you see that in certain verticals, obviously sneaker culture, you see it, the comic industry, gaming, you know, we don't do beauty, but you know, in beauty, you see that, right? Like there's, you know, people that would like literally sleep out overnight and stand in front of a store or go to a convention and get dressed up, right? These are people who wear their passion and their fandom on their sleeve as a badge of honor. And first look at where those communities are and, and who has that crazy passionate fandom, not like there are certain things that may feel like they're, they have that fandom, but they don't like fantasy football. A lot of people partake, but like people aren't going to like you know, go to a convention for fantasy football, right? As an example. So first identifying the right fandom driven communities and then looking for the thought leaders and the people with the most authenticity within those communities to kind of help us bridge our way in to establish a base of consumers and products in that. And, you know, those are range from organizations like media companies to influencers, to brands, to other celebrities, you know, and kind of bring a good swath of all that when we want to enter a category. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned over time is it's not always the person with the biggest following, right? I think sometimes people get confused between big following equals conversion. Sometimes those two things are at odds with each other. Sometimes the person with the medium following with the crazy engagement is much stronger than the person with the massive passive following. So, you know, it's become an art identifying, let's say, sellers and creators who have that mid-sized following, but it's a really engaged following. Do you find that it is the brands that that have you know the most cultural cachet associated with them like supreme for example or whoever as opposed to individual creators who have their own personal brand who are doing some type of drop which brings in the most fervor or the most sales yeah it's a good question um i think the brands that originate the product because we do work directly with many brands on product releases if you can get the right brand with an exclusive product or exclusive release window that can always, you know, call it an ex- exclusive SMU product. We call it, um, you know, those can become the most, and even the most prominent talking head can't sell a non-exclusive product at the same scale. You can sell an exclusive product. So, you know, product is always king. Um, but there are cases where there are some people, um, who are, you know, who are, personalities who sometimes can have a very large draw and even if they're not selling their own product but they're a big influencer in the sneaker community etc um you know those people can also drive some really exciting results but we have some some creators um who've done over 1.6 million dollars in revenue on a single live stream on network right so those things are hard to match when you're not um creating original exclusive product Wow. Um, so let's zoom out a little bit. You mentioned this very, you know, up at the top that, you know, live stream over the last two years has really blossomed in the U.S. more than ever before. Can you just talk about 
the consumption patterns that you've witnessed on on your platform over the last even in the last year uh, you know it, i know that people were using it during the pandemic seemed so, you know i was always wondered is this just sort of a f- fading things when things open back up will they stop using it what are you seeing in terms of how people are glomming onto it as a way to actually transact yeah um i'm seeing a continual interest and you know, look, when we started in 2018, no one even knew what it was. Brands didn't know. Consumers didn't know. So this was a completely, um, you know, white space for people. And it took some time for us to train people how to use it, right? And I, that's why I use that HQ trivia analogy a lot when talking to people. So well, they can understand I was about this. to say- <laughs> I was about to say, you guys are doing much better than HQ Trivia, so I think you're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, but that, that that muscle memory of like showing up and watching live, right, is like, is a new behavior. So I think Network and a bunch of other startups and even large enterprise companies who've tried to enter in this space have been doing a decent job of trying to teach people this this new pattern of behavior and how to consume products. Um, and I think we were at the forefront of that. So the, the general awareness has changed. So lastly, there's less education required these days. And then it comes down to like, is what we have interesting for them? And the pandemic gave us and everyone else in the space, a huge boost because people are sitting at home with nothing to do. And they, you know, were, were experimenting with new ways to consume content and buy products. I saw a slight dip this summer when finally people were able to go outside and go to a restaurant and go travel somewhere. But now I'm seeing, um, you know, consumption patterns get back up to pre-pandemic or to pandemic levels. We actually had our largest month ever in the month of October, right? So as the weather's cooling a little bit off and, you know, people are getting into the Q4 shopping season, um, you know, we're seeing astronomical engagement again. So, you know, I think overall the North America consumer is finally ready to receive this. And, you know, everyone always likes to compare to China. I think China's five, six years ahead of us in everything, mobile technology. Um, And I think, you know, we still probably have another year or two to go before we reach mass. But I think it's just starting to happen now that this is becoming mainstream. Well, this is the other question I wanted to ask you about China, because, you know, I've been covering retail for a bit, tech for a long time. And I feel like I remember in I want to say like 2012, people were talking about, you know, China live stream. Maybe I'm, maybe it's a little bit after that. But I, I always wondered if the analogy is right. Do you think that we should be comparing ourselves to China in terms of the way that people are are using live stream commerce? Maybe it's too simple of a question, but like that's what we always talk about. And it seems like it might not ever be apples to apples. It may never be apples to apples, but here's what I think. Um, China broadly in all mobile first technology and super apps is five, six years ahead of us. So you could walk Mm -hmm. into a restaurant in Shanghai pre pandemic and use WeChat to order off of a QR code at a restaurant, but not just look at the menu, actually dynamically order the food and pay for it and walk out and never have dealt with a waiter. Right. And now here we are post pandemic and we've just introduced a QR code that takes you to static menu, right? (laughs) Like we're still behind them. Right. So like their use and adoption of intuitive mobile first technology is just still drastically ahead of us. So I think it's just a few years before we catch up. Now, I think there's also cultural differences. There's lags in technology adoption, like mobile payments and live stream shopping. And then there's a cultural difference. What I believe is big in Taobao in China is a lot of promotions and discounts and other types of commoditized products, um, whether it's a farmer selling mangoes or more Amazon style um products, right, that are, are more commoditized that you're buying through Taobao, as an example. In America, I think our take has been, hey, the American consumer isn't going to use Amazon Live, which they've been trying for a long time. And the conventional wisdom would be they have the scale, they have the products, they've got Prime, but it doesn't seem to be working for them. I don't have any empirical data, but I just can see the amount of people watching and some things that I've yeah. heard. It's not even a billion-dollar business. 
um, in my eyes. And, you know, I think that, you know, if you're a person who makes a hammer in Philadelphia and you have that on FBA and you're doing a live stream, like, why is that interesting, right? So there's a lot of value proposition and kind of setup that we need here in the US that's like, hey, it has to be an exclusive, interesting product. It has to have a story. It has to have an interesting person attached to it. There has to be a call to action. And, you know, I believe that the kind of road to consumers' hearts in North America for live stream shopping is going to be more premium and exclusive and full price versus discounted and promotional. So I think that we're going to come in through two very different paths on like what actually gets people's behavior changing for live stream. And it isn't just going to be about, a, you know, being able to buy a roll of paper towel and live stream that doesn't work <laughs> well I, I wanted to talk about this because it seems like the bet that you've taken and that you know seems to be working is is sort of on production value and product obviously but also the fact that it, it's you know there are other live stream platforms and it's as you described it's a guy with a hammer you know it's someone <laughs> uh or maybe not a hammer but you know what i mean like it seems like the idea is it's much more peer-to-peer and it seems like what you're doing is much more glossy do you think that is one of the major elements what how do you what are your thoughts when it comes to production for each individual stream you do in the beginning it was all about production value right because we were doing so few things and we made all the content and we still do some of that but now we're putting the control of the content in the hands of the community. But in this case, our community of sellers are professionals. They are some of the biggest brands in the world, some of the biggest celebrities in the world. So even if they're doing a lo-fi live stream off of their cell phone in their bedroom, you're, you're hearing from like really authentic creators who are best in class in what they do. And I think it's, you know, it doesn't need to be as about the quality of the lights or the camera or the motion graphics, right? There's still some of that, but it's, it's, it's more about just like the quality of the people and the products we work with is our point of differentiation. While the content may go more UGC-esque feeling and more authentic, um, you know, I think that's our big point of differentiation. Um, but some of the categories we go into like card breaking, you know, it is just a guy in his basement breaking cards mm-hmm. you know he may have a multi-million dollar business doing that in his <laughs> basement so he's a you know serious seller but you know um some of these guys too are, are, are putting a lot of energy into the content they're creating and making it exciting even some of these you know people at the lower rung of our marketplace so you know i, I think it depends on the category and the product but you know one thing i've always tried to tell my team here is like the product should be so good that the consumer would want to jump through a flaming hoop to get it and the video becomes like an add value to that story. Um, but, you know, the product needs to be really amazing in its own right, first and foremost. You can't expect a, a good video to sell a bad product. I wanted to ask you because, you know, the product is obviously the most important part. But especially as you're trying to get more new people to the platform, have you found anything that works in terms of retention, like what, like in the, in the sense that you initially thought of it, like a program people could tune in three times a week. And it, you know, that was a fun thing like HQ. What have you found works for if somebody says, I want to get this drop once. And then they say, Oh, this is cool. Maybe I'll go again. Has, has there been some formula with that? If there's a formula, I think on the consumer side, different call it segments or, or verticals of our business have different behavior. So stuff like trading cards, those people are coming back every week. They're fanatical. They're watching multiple streams a night. You know, it's a very different behavior than people in, let's say, the art side of our business, where people may come back once a quarter for something they know they really want. They've researched it. You know, it's much more of, of an event that's more um, sporadic than than regular. So we get different behavior across different audience and, and category cohorts. And the same thing with the sellers, right? Some products are more expensive release less often, you know, and some, some of our most 
kind of like high profile talent is doing once or twice a year. And then in certain categories, some people are broadcasting four or five times a week, right? So it's just really categorical in the behavior and what gets people coming back. But what's interesting is when you find a commonality of people who love, let's say, sneakers and cards, and then they're cross shopping. Um, and what we found is, um, you know, we had one one really prevalent creator who probably only does five to six things per year. Um, you know, and they sell a couple million dollars worth of goods per year on the platform. That creator, the people that came in for their live streams, even whether they bought or not, ended up spending nineteen million dollars a year on other things outside of that creator, right? So it shows certain people have a really sticky audience that they bring in, and then those people can then go discover lots of other things if we can can offer them up through machine learning and through their user behavior, like to suggest to them, Hey, here's some other stuff you might like. So the power of the suggestion, once you get a high intent people in there is really powerful. So is pretty much it all suggestion in terms of retention and stickiness, or are there any other UI tricks? I, 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 it sounds like you, you guys would never do a discount or anything like that. I assume because you're dealing with such luxury. We we do, we do sales and things like that, but that's not really the hook. I, I think for us, it's just about, you know, the, the big dream is that, Network is as dynamic for commerce as Spotify is for music, right? And if you and I both open up our Spotify's right now, they're going to look very, very different. And it's going to—it's taking into account everything that you've done on that platform and everything you listen to, and it's trying to serve you up other things it thinks you have a high propensity to like. And they do a really masterful job of that, hence why they're so successful. And I think you know, building these suggestion engines for commerce is probably one of our biggest challenges and biggest things to look forward to in the future. So we can serve people up things that they may or may not know about and, and hopefully they like. And, you know, that's, that's the big opportunity, I believe, for us in the long term. Well, we're almost running out of time, but I have a couple of questions. One is just in terms of, you know, as you're growing, expanding, going into new categories, what are what are some of the biggest areas of growth? You mentioned cards earlier. Is that is that the biggest one? Is it sneakers? What are you seeing in terms of the, the biggest, I guess, catalyst? Sneakers and designer toys and collectibles are our two largest categories by revenue. Um, cards is one of the newest categories we've been in for just about a year it very quickly went to become almost 40% of our transactions. Now, it's a much smaller percentage of revenue because the AOV is very small on cards, but the category has a lot of virality. Um, uh, Something else that we're going into over the next year is gaming accessories, meaning like video game accessories. Mm -hmm. That's keyboards, mouse pads, controllers, etc. That's an area that has a lot of fandom. We've been doing a lot with a company called FaZe Clan. If you're familiar with them, they're one of the biggest esports teams where we did a big drop with them today. Um, so, you know, there's a few categories that are really sticky, but art continues to be one of those ones that, you know, has a really unique customer, a really high AOV and has just some great, amazing, sticky personalities and communities. So, you know, we, we view a few different verticals as continuing to be core and we're going to experiment with a few new verticals going into the new year. And th- that leads into this, this last question, which is, you know, what are your major goals or things you need to tick off the box for for the coming year is it product expansion will there be new features we'll be building out the the product recommendation yeah look you know there's a there's a lot of things we're working on on the on the technology side we just rolled out live auction this week um that is something we didn't have before that's already a very popular mechanic in, in some other live stream shopping platforms so that's a new interesting tool for us to play with we've only been on ios and android uh, mobile app. We just rolled out web this week. So those are two major new you know, innovations that I think will unlock growth and engagement. Um, you know, I mentioned we're working on new categories. Uh, we're going to be rolling into new geographies, new countries, 
Um, so that's big, you know, rolling into other languages. So those are, those are some of the big things we're working on. Um, but I think for us, like, you know, we want to be as synonymous with commerce as Netflix is with entertainment or Spotify is with audio. I think that's the North star for us, right? Like when you, when you look at a shelf of apps, we want to be, you know, that definitive of a, of a clear choice to make when you're looking for, for new ways to shop. Got it. Well, Aaron, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.